Cinephile. Nicholas Cage. Very sincere group of film enthusiasts who are proudly cinephiles. Oh my goodness! Warren Beatty apparently read the wrong name. This is incredible. Moonlight won this picture. Cinephile. Ethan Hawke. It's kind of like I'm a professional actor and I direct for love. There's so much in this world that's dividing us. And music is one of those great tools that brings us together. All right. There's baseball and World War II. It's kind of a dream. Cinephile. The Adnan Verk Movie Podcast. All right. Yes. Why wasn't I still recording? That would have been gold. Could have run that as the open. A lethal cocktail of Breaking Bad's compelling narrative drive, Fargo's dark humor, and the psychological drama of Taxi Driver, and yet it feels wholly unique. That's Adam Chitwood at Collider talking about Barry. Finally saw the entire first season. A great binge watch. Eight episodes are about 30 minutes in length. Won an Emmy Award for Bill Hader, Best Actor, and a Best Supporting Actor. Long overdue to Henry Winkler. It is excellent. I intend to review it in full. Coming up on this week's Cinephile. Thank you so much to everybody. Seriously, you guys are unbelievable. We asked you all last time to send in some reviews and some ratings on Apple Podcasts. Now, Rob Lemley tells me it wasn't the easiest thing to do, so he's suggesting a quick tutorial. Dan or Rick, would you like to give a quick tutorial for everybody listening? I expect everybody to do this today, how to give a rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Dan. Honestly, I don't think it's that difficult. I'll try to pull it up right now, but I'm I'm pretty sure you just hit a few buttons, type the review, and hit send. <laughs> I, I agree. It seems straightforward to me. If you go to, as Dan said, Apple Podcasts, type in Cinephile. Of course, it comes up. If you're already subscribing, you just click on the icon, and there you'll see. Uh, leave a rating, leave a review. You simply press the rating and write a review. So it seems straightforward, but anyways... I appreciate so much what you all did. So seriously, we're doing this now. We're going to just read out a bunch of these because they were so funny and so well-written. And because of all of you, because of all of your generosity, I'm so touched. I'm so grateful. Dan, how high did we climb? We weren't even in the top 200 until last week. So I checked at one point over the weekend after you had mentioned how many reviews were flying in. And I noticed that we were ranked number 20 in the film and TV category. Now, I remember back towards our inception when we got that initial bump in Apple Podcasts, we were as high as number five. But I don't think, as you had mentioned, we had been in the top 200 in the past year or so. So you guys are unbelievable. And that's where we're going to read some of these reviews. Give back and thank you all. From T-Brad, who said, great movie pod. He wrote this one on Saturday. Smart move standardizing the length of the pod. Props to Louise. Great reviews and insight from the team. Get Dan a new intro. Gas bag gets way too much heat for his reviews. He's passionate. That bleeds through in his reviews. Maybe it's a term of endearment. Maybe he should own it and change his segment to reflect that. Hot take from the gas bag or something like that. Brett Baker's uh, one of our fans. He's unbelievable. He writes about the gospel cinephile. Teddy Roosevelt I love because his subject heading said he don't go down for nobody, which is a great Raging Bull reference. Also, my buddy Graham McGowan wrote Sultan of Cinema, Friar of Film. He supported Passmore. He said, listen, Rick takes some heat, but the whole point is he's reviewing movies which are not necessarily well regarded. So he's doing an alternative take. So he's not doing movies that are particularly loved. So he liked that. Uh, this one from Psychedelic. Uh, you have a great eye for talent, provide fantastic interviews with many notable film luminaries whilst juxtaposing it with the everyman reviews of your staffers. Shout out to Rambling Rick for keeping things dot, 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 windy. 
Appreciate that. Uh, this one here from Kawabunga. Lady cinephile here, living in L.A. and working in the industry. Randomly found your podcast by searching Oscar race. Even though I don't necessarily agree with top movies of the year, I love listening to beautifully written reviews do really value your opinions. Wouldn't have expected an ESPN podcast about films to even exist, but I'm really enjoying the sports references here and there. Can't wait to keep listening through the Oscars and beyond. That one's great. Now, uh, this is a little bit too positive. Let's get someone's negative. Okay, this is Michael. Hi, I love the podcast, but Adnan speaks too quickly. Perhaps that is the reason for fall off past an hour as listener brains are worn out by the speaking pace. I had to double check to make sure the app was not speeding up the speech. That's a direct shot at um, Mark Simon, who says, my podcast, this our podcast, is only he cannot do the one and a half times. You can't get through it fast because I talk so fast. So I'm just doing that out of spite towards Simon. Alex V, subject heading, Passmore is the glue holding it all together. Adnan has a depth of understanding of cinema and matching esoteric vocabulary that would appeal to even the most knowledgeable of cinephiles. However, he also manages to convey a level of relatability that will interest even casual fans. Reviews are incredibly refreshing. Dan Stanzig is a great counterbalance to Adnan as he brings in everyman perspective of the podcast. His reviews have been spot on for film fans like myself who are less versed in the art of cinema. Finally, Passport is the glue holding it all together. He is the bridge between Adnan and Stanzik. Passport displays an incredible knowledge of film, but also has an understanding of what drives everyday filmgoers. The podcast got much better when he came on, and the three perspectives really provide well-rounded reviews. Okay, that's good stuff. Robert Stack Army, he gave a four-way beliefs. So we got Jesse Palmer's hair also chiming in. Good to see. Um, that's obviously a pseudonym. That's obviously Rob Lemley. Um this one here, this is from a Yukon fan. Best movie podcast available. Dan's the man. Rick's number one movie of the year was A Quiet Place, so he can do no wrong in my eyes. Never stop because what you guys have will never be topped. And this is the last one here. This is, I've been here since episode one. Uh, I love the subject heading, King for a Night. This is the one that's breathtakingly mean. Adnan was clearly made for life in TV and radio. It's really a treat we get to hear him apply those talents to reviewing movies. Not only does he have the chops for it, he has the knowledge and passion for film that can't be faked. This show is perfectly balanced in such a way that Verk can flirt with film snobbery, but also gives us his reviews of the latest superhero installment. Adding to that balance is the Everyman segment by producer Dan Stancic. His welcome cynicism creates a good rhythm with Adnan's affable Canadian nature. However, Rick Pastor was not gifted with a personality being on-air talent, which is fine. But I like this podcast too much to let a detriment like this go unacknowledged. If Ricky has something longer than 20 to 30 seconds to say, I think it's better left unsaid. He had a story about Paris Hilton's boyfriend that they would have used to torture terrorists at Guantanamo. Whoa. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that is just brutal. By the way, I did check. All you do is you click write a review. It pops up. You have to rank us out of five stars. You write a title for your post or comment. Then you type your comment and you hit send. So it's super easy. Couldn't have been more straightforward. <laughs> Lem suggested a tutorial. Like, okay, great. There's your tutorial. I expect all of you to leave reviews. Appreciate it all so much. Ricky, you okay? You, I knew you could handle it, right? Yeah, I'd just like to let everyone know that I'm available for uh, birthdays and speaking engagements. <laughs> Hit him up, our passport 87 on Twitter. As always, we're on Twitter, Cinephile, ESPN, and on Instagram. Starting to crush it there as well. Verified and posting lots of good stuff. Thanks to Matthew McConaughey, who was our recent guest. Unfortunately, Serenity bombed at the box office. Did not do well. 21% Rotten Tomatoes. Got a D-plus in the cinema score. 
But he's a great dude, and we thank him again for coming on. Kevin Hart's film, by the way, The Upside, still doing well, number two at the box office. And the SAG Awards were last night. Congrats to supporting actors Emily Blunt, Rick's number one film, A Quiet Place. Dan also had A Quiet Place in his top ten, number seven, I want to say, something like that. Uh, first time ever, a Best Supporting Actress SAG Award winner was not nominated for an Academy Award. Idris Elba, this happened to, I believe, as well recently. He won the Best Supporting Actress SAG, was not nominated for Beast of No Nation, I want to say, the Oscars. Somebody will correct me if I'm wrong. But Emily Blunt... Not nominated for an Oscar, yet wins a SAG Award Supporting Actress. That hurts Amy Adams. The thought was no Regina King nominated for the SAG. Maybe Amy Adams wins. Instead, Blunt wins. I still feel like it's going to be King or Adams. Supporting Actor, my boy, Marissa Ali, cannot be stopped. Not going to be dethroned. Sam Elliott, sorry. Lifetime Achievement Award, not going to happen. And uh, I thought maybe Richard E. Grant would have a chance. He was great. Could you ever forgive me? Not going to happen. Hirsch, unbelievable. Way to go. Lead Actor, Rami Malek. That's interesting because now... We got a little bit of a race here on our hands. Bradley Cooper is officially done. He was the front runner to win Best Actor as of November, and now has no chance of winning. It's going to be either Robbie Mollick, and there's a lot of Queen fans in the Academy, or Kristen Bale, and people love what he was able to do with his um, rendition of Dick Cheney. BAFTA Awards are February 10th. Now, Bale's British, but Queen's a British band. So I'm curious to see what happens with the BAFTA, how that could impact the race, but that's a very interesting race. And lead actress... I think Gaga's done. Uh, she could use a BAFTA win February 10th, but I don't think it's going to happen. I think Glenn Close is getting the Lifetime Achievement Award as she wins Best Actress last night. And what does it mean for Black Panther, one favorite ensemble? doesn't mean a ton, to be honest with you, because Green Book wasn't nominated for Best Ensemble. So if it had beaten Green Book, then I would have said this is a little bit more interesting. The favorite also, I don't believe, was up for Best Ensemble. So it's a nice win for Be- Black Panther. Definitely gives it some momentum, but I still don't think it's enough to beat Green Book overall uh, for Best Picture. Rick, you want to opine? Yeah, I just think, uh, like you said, with um, Black Panther, it a lot of the times with these best ensembles, if all the categories aren't like cohesive with the Oscars and the SAGs and all the other awards, they kind of don't really mean anything. But when you have head-to-head races, like you said, Gaga is done, Bradley Cooper is done, but the Bale and Rami Malek race is going to be fantastically interesting coming up, especially coming into the BAFTAs. Uh, like we said before, don't take too much stock into certain awards, uh, but other awards that are just head to head, you got to really look into. Hundred percent. Also, thanks to Kathy Legran who sent me this article uh, called "Oscars So Male." There's no Oscars so white controversy, but there still is an Oscars So Male. This week, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences announced the nominees. The Academy shut out women out of nominations in five major categories: director, cinematography, score, editing, and visual effects. Costume design is the only category with an all-female slate of nominees. Cinematography, interesting. Rachel Morrison, I believe, Black Panther, so she did not get nominated for cinematography. Yeah, and she was nominated last year um, for, I can't remember, uh, Mudbound, I believe it was, the uh, Netflix film, which was fantastic. Half of the eight films nominated for Best Picture received an F rating on gender parity from Grade My Movie, which based their scores on the percentage of women in the cast and crew. A failing score means that fewer than 20% of the cast and crew are women. Of the films nominated for Best Picture, only The Favorite received an A rating for gender parity, meaning that at least 51% of the film's cast and crew are women. Two other films with Best Actress nominees received an A rating as well. The Wife starring Glenn Close and Can You Ever Forgive Me starring Melissa McCarthy. Something interesting there to note when it comes to the Oscars. Also, of course, I was elated that Paul Schrader was nominated for an Academy Award first time ever. He had a really funny article on the L.A. Papers in which he said that it's it's an odd feeling because he said, obviously, I'm grateful to be nominated, but I don't need... The validation of the Academy to tell me I made a good movie. I know I made a good movie. 
And he said, in the case of Martin Scorsese, my good friend, he said, Marty made it a priority for him to finally win an Oscar. Like, it really haunted and upset him. And I told Marty one time, if winning an Oscar is a priority, then you need some other priorities. <laughs> Bob Schrader couldn't care less. Like, whatever. Awesome. I'm glad I got nominated. But I just get to make movies. That's an important. So he called Ethan Hawke and said, listen, you won anyways. I know you're disappointed, but who cares? This stuff really doesn't mean that much. So we should all probably have more perspective, like a guy like Paul Schrader. Uh, we'll have interviews from the Critics' Choice Awards coming up in just a second. But first, I want to tell you about a show called Barry which uh, I'm sure many of you have heard of, Bill Hader and Henry Winkler, and it's excellent. I finally had a chance to dive into it. And it's eight episodes, as I mentioned, 30 episodes in length. It's perfect for binge-watching. And here's the story. It is a hitman who is depressed and lonely and wants to find something different with his life. And so when he has an assignment from the Midwest to go to Los Angeles, he ends up having an awakening of sorts. Um Here's the exact write-up I want to read here from HBO. Disillusioned at the thought of taking down another mark, depressed, low-level hitman Barry Berkman seeks a way out. When the Midwesterner reluctantly travels to Los Angeles to execute a hit on an actor who is betting a mobster's wife, little does Barry know that the City of Angels may be his sanctuary. He follows his target into acting class and ends up instantly drawn to the community of eager hopefuls, especially dedicated student Sally, who becomes the object of his affection. While Barry wants to start a new life as an actor, his handler Fuchs has other ideas, and the hitman's criminal past won't let him walk away so easily. So I thought it would be a heavy dose of satirical comedy, really making fun of acting and acting showcases and the fact that when they have scene study, they don't do like Death of a Salesman, they do movies. So one of the best scenes, they should have lasted the SAGs. Hater was nominated for Best Actor, didn't win. Lost to my guy Tony Shalhoub, who you'll hear from momentarily. But um, they show the clip. He's doing Glengarry Glenn Ross, but he doesn't understand the scene. So he's just like, put the coffee down. Coffee's for closers. <laughs> like he has no idea what, what exactly Baldwin's doing in the scene. And Winkler just is so brilliant in the movie, in the show, excuse me, because he's sending up all these acting teachers. If you've ever been to one acting class in your life at any level, or just imagine what these guys are like, he's dead on. They're, they're pompous. Uh, they're self-indulgent. They're manipulative. They're generally cheap. And a lot of his acting, I think, bears a great debt of gratitude to Barry Zuckerkorn, the immortal character he played on Arrested Development. Just his certain mannerisms and um, just his general personality. Also, a little bit of Carl Weathers in Arrested Development. Remember, Carl Weathers is always so cheap. You're going to leave that chicken. There's still some meat there in that bone. There's a couple of scenes where Winkler's so funny talking about how much the class costs and the fact that they still have to keep paying the full amount. But even when he's in that moment, the way he motivates the actors – um, it's really inspired and really well done. He himself said that he worked with a couple of acting teachers who he'd drawn. Even his book, when you see the book, you go, that's exactly what an acting teacher's book, the dust jacket looked like, the title, hit your lines, where they hit your marks, read your lines, perfect. So what I'm, what I'm not surprised by is how funny they get that part of it. What I am surprised by is how dramatic it is. And when I say dark comedy, I'm talking dark comedy. I, I didn't think, I thought he's a hitman who wants to be an actor and that's it. It's light and fun. No, it's dark. There's Chechen mobsters in here and these guys, are hilariously offbeat, but it's a violent show, and it goes to some places I was not expecting. I mean, Alison Turner thinks Dan Stanzik is Bill Hader. I, I I couldn't disagree more, especially now after watching the show. But there's scenes of Hader wrestling with guilt. I mean, there, there a few of the episodes he directed himself, and it's got this odd tone to it um, that I think is really impressive and really bold. And I would just emphasize the fact it's a comedy, but there's definitely dramatic edges, particularly the way the season ends. I said, wow, that's pretty gutsy what they did with it. Season two is coming out this spring. We don't know the exact um, time of it. But Winkler's seduction of a cop in particular is very notable. In fact, he says to her one time over dinner, if this isn't the finest piece of poultry you've ever eaten, you owe me a kick in the genitals. I mean, he's unbelievable on this show. Passmore has seen Barry. Ricky, your thoughts on the show? 
Yeah, I'm a huge fan of Bill Hader back from his SNL days. I think he's one of the top performers they've ever had on that show. And when I heard about the show, obviously, I'm immediately drawn to it. And like you said, you think it's going to be one way where it's going to be a little more light because of how Hader was perceived on uh, on SNL. But no, it's it's extremely dark at times. It's extremely uh, daunting. And I just love the direction that they took it, and I can't wait for season two. Dan, you going to check it out at any point? Bill Hader's your guy. I love Bill Hader. It's one of those where it's been on my list for a while. Not that I actually have a physical list. That'd be weird. Um, but a lot of people have recommended it. I haven't gotten to it. Probably won't. I think I'm too far gone, but I do love Hader. The other show I want to talk about is Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, the story of this show. And talk about a show that's been on a lot of lists. I mean, Critics' Choice Awards it's winning. At last at the SAG Awards, the show dominated. Rachel Brosnan won Best Actress. Tony Shalhoub won Best Actor. And they won Best Ensemble Drama. So I said, all right. My wife correctly pointed out my chauvinistic tendencies when it comes to TV shows. Sopranos, Breaking Bad, Oz, Curb Your Enthusiasm, Seinfeld. You know, find me one show with a female protagonist that you often watch. I didn't want to go all the way back to Murphy Brown and embarrass myself, although Ben Lyons is a huge Murphy Brown guy. Ben Lyons right now, you, you think, why is he on the podcast? He's at Sunday. No, no. He's watching the reboot of Murphy Brown. That's how much he loves Candace Bergen. As a child, he knew he wanted to get into journalism, and that's where Ben is right now. Just hunkered down binge-watching Murphy Brown. Murphy Brown is back. Anyways, that's probably the last show that I really enjoyed with a female protagonist, but I'm all in a Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Here's a story in case you're wondering what it's all about. Set in the late 1950s, the husband of Mrs. Maisel wants to be a stand-up comic. So he's obviously a terrible comic because you quickly realize he's just stealing Bob Hope's jokes and going out there and bombing, particularly one night he has a terrible set. And he goes back and he tells Rachel Brosnan's character that he's leaving her. He's just He needs a new direction in his life. He didn't expect his life would go this way, and she leaves. And he leaves. And at the first 30 minutes of the show, I'm like, okay, I can appreciate why it's critically adored. It has spectacular production design, you know, great costumes, great music. It feels like Mad Men in many ways. Mad Men was 60s. This is 50s. I guess it's overlapping. But around that era, very true to its spirit. But I said, probably not for me. Like, it's just not my kind of show. But then Maisel goes, because she just got left by her husband. She's she's jilted. She's furious. She goes down to the stand-up club and delivers a blistering set that is shockingly profane and authentic and lands her in prison because of the fact that she's, you know, using all this lewd language. And at that time, a woman couldn't do that. There in prison, she meets Lenny Bruce, the first great American stand-up comic who gets arrested all the time because of the fact he's smoking weed and using this kind of language and away the show goes. And the last 10 minutes hooked me. I said, okay, now I want to see where this show goes. And um, like I said, it's a light, fluffy concoction in many ways. you got plenty of eye candy with the production design, the costumes, the music. you got accent. You wait the positive. You get uh, It's a Good Day. You got Louis Armstrong's What a Wonderful World. You got a Sinatra duet. I mean, by the way, Accentuate the Positive also used to great uh, use in L.A. Confidential. Remember the opening credits? I'm like, when's the last time I heard this song in a movie? Oh, yeah, L.A. Confidential. But it's really darker at its root. And speaking of the actors, Brosnan's excellent because, again, she shows this woman who wants to be happily married. She wants to be this domestic wife. But when she goes on stage, it's like this animal's unleashed out of her. And she's uh, using sexual graphic language. And in some ways, it reminded me of The Favorite. The Favorite is this costume drama. And so with costume dramas, your expectations are the characters act and look a certain way. And even though they look that way, they act in a different way, as Claire Atkins calls it, delicious. Similarly, in Maisel, you're expecting these women who are like Peggy in Mad Men, and you're expecting them to be um, doting or submissive. Then all of a sudden, Alex Borstein shows up, who many of you know from Family Guy. She plays Brosnahan's manager. She's She swears more than a David Mamet play. Like She's unbelievable. She's just this drunken sailor the way she talks and very, very, very funny. Shalhoub, let's get to my guy, he's the father, and he is this tight, um, upper-crust New York 
Jew who does not have any idea that his daughter is a stand-up comic, but he's doing great things with the fact he's he's almost like an actor stuck in a straitjacket. He's trying to get out of it sometimes. Obviously, I know he won three Emmy Awards for his work in Monk, a show that I'm mildly familiar with, although I didn't watch it. So I'm sure there's some aspects of Monk and that the way the character is just so, um, like I said, upper crust and constrained. But he's amazing. I mean, he's got such good comic timing. There's one scene where he's particularly talking to his daughter about what she's going to do with her life and how finding a husband. And I mean, just imagine at that time you found out your daughter's husband's left and now they're trying to reconcile. Kevin Pollack also shows up. He plays uh, the father-in-law and the great David Pamer, who I love. I mean, if I'd known David Pamer was in the show, David Pamer was in Mr. Saturday Night. He was Academy Award nominated playing Billy Crystal's agent. He shows up in Marvelous Mrs. Maisel playing an agent as well. Wallace Shawn is in the movie. I mean, this got a very eclectic cast. So I'm not surprised it's done so well in the critics, and I've enjoyed it. I'm now a couple episodes into season two, so I highly recommend it. If you like the 1950s, if you like that era, if you like the music, if you like the acting, you're wondering why are the critics swooning over this show, do yourself a favor and check out Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Both seasons are currently available. Season two goes to France. And let me just tell you right now, you get Tony Shalhoub in a beret. I mean, that's enough of a reason to watch this show. He's very, very funny. Check out Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Claire Atkins coming up momentarily. Claire will echo the sentiments about Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. But right now, I want to play the sound from the Critics' Choice Awards. So we had Max last time explaining what happened. I'll give you a little bit of my rendition. Obviously, talked about the Southwest flight. Thanks to Mark Simon, who tweeted that out. I do heavily endorse them. I'm trying to watch the Eagles game while I'm on the red carpet. For those who are wondering what the red carpet, you do get an assigned space. So TNT and Kevin Frazier, like right in the middle. And I was about four spots down. I was with this German reporter who every time an actor came by, she's like, who's that? Who, like she had no, no idea who anybody was. Like, I'm like, that's, you don't, like, Issa Rae, insecure. Like, I don't watch the show, but I'm aware of these people. I have no idea. Just, if it's a big star, I'll get him. Willem Dafoe was three down. I'm yelling at Willem Dafoe. I'm like, no. I'm like, as Scott Van Pelt asked me, because what's it like? I go, listen, and even Ben Lines agreed with me. I touch it just enough. Like, I, I get to go to these things. I wear a tux. It's fun. It's amusing. If I did this all the time, it'd be like a beat reporter for Dan's Knicks. Like, the team stinks. Everyone laughs at you. No one has any time for you. Like, this sucks. You're just yelling at people. Kevin Pollack, Kevin Pollack, can I, can I have a word? No, no, I'm begging Kevin Pollack for 30 seconds of his time. That's what this is like, which is why Tony Shalhoub now will forever be my guy. Because Tony Shalhoub did the big ones, he did TNT, he got Access Hollywood, and I, Tony, quick turn, I'm like, yeah, I got Tony Shalhoub. In the moment, you listen to the interview, I'm, I'm, I'm so furious at myself, I didn't ask him about the man who wasn't there. But we got Big Night in, we got Quick Change in, my dad's favorite, one of my dad's favorite comedies, Bill Murray, outstanding, Dan still appalled, I had it in my top five Bill Murray comedies of all time. You'll hear Shaloub's reaction, Shaloub, Shaloub was all in it, yeah, are you kidding, Quick Change is awesome. Uh, so that was great. We got Bo Burnham again, uh, Elsie Fisher, eighth grade, just for Dan and Rick. Uh, Bo, by the way, is like 6'9". I was like, well, you stand out on a red carpet. And I was like, oh, I interviewed you back in May for ESPN for July. Okay, cool. And um, also, Ben got him on his podcast, the actor who plays one of the villains in Black Klansman, the Finnish actor Jasper Pakonen. He is really good on the Lions Den. So check out Ben's podcast on Podcast One. Subscribe, rate, review. He tells a story about how much he loves fly fishing. And he was also a big entrepreneur. So he just does acting right now on the side. And Spike Lee did not think that he was an actor. You'll hear the whole interview that I asked him about with the audition with Spike. But Jasper Pockenden, a very interesting guy. Check it on the Lions Den. So Critics' Choice is kind of humbling. After that, Max picked it up. Obviously, we went inside, embarrassed ourselves, ran around and fawned after movie stars. Hopefully, we'll get Ray Seahorn on the pod as well. But here is uh, the assembly of actors I was able to talk to on the red carpet, beginning with Marvelous Mrs. Maisel's Tony Shalhoub. And now, I thought from Geico Motorcycle. It took 15 minutes to click on the banner ad entitled, You Won't Believe What These Child Stars Look Like Now. 
be dissatisfied and kind of sad about how the child stars look. And now your computer is plagued by incessant pop-up ads. Oh, this can't be good. To add insult to injury, you could have used those 15 clickbait minutes to switch your motorcycle insurance to Geico. Geico. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more on motorcycle insurance. All right, the great Tony Shalhoub, Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. What an incredible show to be a part of, and you're so funny on that show. How did this opportunity first come about? Wow, I... um I got a call uh, from my representation, and um, they said, you want to read this script? It's, uh, it's a comedy that takes place in the late 50s, and I just love that period. And so I said, yes, send it. And, um, and oh, they said it was you know by the team that uh, did the Gilmore Girls, and my wife and daughter were devoted to the Gilmore Girls. And so I read it. I loved it. I loved the character. I got on the phone uh, with them, with... Uh, Amy Sherman Palladino and Dan Palladino, and uh, and it was uh, just kind of a no-brainer. That was going to. Sh- I had just moved to New York that year, and the show uh, they said was going to shoot in New York, so it seemed like the right, the right fit. It's amazing because when you watch it, you say, "Well, how could this not be a huge hit?" It's it's funny, it's heartwarming, it's charming. Did you have that sense on set? Do you ever have that sense? This is going to be successful. Yeah, I always have that sense, and I'm always wrong. <laughs> but this time, I wasn't so wrong. Of all the cast members, listen, they're all great, but who is it the most fun to play off of? Oh, they're all dreamy. Uh, I guess I, I couldn't pick one. It's just a great ensemble. Rachel, Alex, they're all great. On a personal note, Big Night's one of my favorite movies. I love that movie so much. I think it's the best movie about food. It's the best movie ever about brothers. Tell me any anecdote you have about that story and work with Stanley Tucci. Oh, well, Stanley's been a friend uh, for a long time. I... Uh, did a did theater with Stanley even before years before a big night, and um, that was kind of a it was kind of a game changer. That you know working on that movie, um, it's a lot of because uh, he was uh, he and his cousin who wrote it they were first time screenwriters. He and, and Campbell Scott directed it, first time directors. So um, we were uh, we just didn't know how it was gonna you know how it was gonna track out there in the world. And people just seem to love it, and it's held up over the years. And it was, uh, it was just, it was great playing brothers. Yeah, the music, the food, and I love that last shot. You know, sometimes directors are so busy. Just a wide shot, two brothers making eggs. You say so much. It's so, it's such a beautifully wrought scene. Yeah, it is. Although I have to tell you, the only, the only funny part of that was we did that, uh, that one long take, maybe about six times, and. Uh, those eggs were really, really hot because they were coming right out of the pan. You know, usually when in normal life you put something on a plate, you get you get a chance to cool. But we had to like just dig, dig the forks in there, and uh, after about the sixth take, uh, our mouths were pretty much, you know, shredded. Last one for you. I love the movie Quick Change. I know it's a... Uh, listen, my dad and I love that movie so much. The way your character keeps saying Bluff Tony, maybe it's because, you know, South Asian family, we can relate to this guy. This, right, Middle Eastern guy, can't speak English that well. Like, all right, we've been there before. But tell me any memories you have of Quick Change. We used to always say Bluff Tony as kids. So funny. Yeah, that was, a, that was my first real movie, I think, or at least the first movie that I wasn't cut out of. And, uh, no, seriously. And, um, yeah, it was... It was they let me... Uh, write my own dialogue you know uh, I didn't have any lines in the script it just said and the cabbie speaks so 
I wanted, I didn't want to just mumble and, you know, uh, so I uh, actually wrote out a gibberish language. So, um, it was in Arabic you were speaking, I know, but, but that, that, uh, allowed me to pad my part because they, once I started talking, you know, I could just go as long as I wanted. So great. Tony Shalhoub, Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Thanks so much, man. Thanks, thanks a lot. Hey, great to be back with Bo Burnham. What a success with 8th grade and Elsie Fisher. I was a huge fan of the film back when it came out in July. And Elsie, I got a chance to talk to Bo. First time talking to you. Uh, what's been this ride been like for you? Oh, just the best. I mean, I love the film so much and I love being in it and being able to, you know, champion it around all these award shows and everything. It's just been incredible. Craziest thing. You know, my producer's a 32-year-old white male. I got another producer's 31-year-old white male. They go, how in the world did they, did Bo figure out how to do this and how did Elsie know how to be able to convey this? And my wife said to me, because it's the worst part of being a girl. I'm telling you, eighth grade is the worst. Was it like that for you? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think just public school, especially. Eighth grade might be the worst year because I think you finally become self-aware. Private school's not great either. Right. right. Um, No, but I mean, I don't know. There's something about public school, man. Just, it's like a war zone. But we talked to you back in July before the film came out, and I was saying how great it was your relationship with Gary Shandling and the fact he gave you advice on films. I keep thinking of you. Every time I see you, I think of Gary Shandling now because it's like how mentors can help people, and you're going to be a mentor for others as well. Yeah, I hope so. That'd be Yeah, Gary was incredibly kind to me, and um, the kindness he showed me is a kindness I've tried to pass on. And, and not just in – I mean, the, the most powerful thing he did as a quote-unquote mentor was not treat me like a mentee, you know, just try to treat me as an equal. And that's something I did with – tried to do with her, you know, just the most powerful – lessons I learned were from older people treating me at an eye level and not condescending to me or not trying to take me under their wing. You've had that great line about doing the research for this and you're like, if somebody checked my computer, they'd be like, why is this guy watching teenage videos trying to get research? But that's how you got the dialogue, right? Exactly. Yeah, that was, yeah, that's the way to do it. No other way other than like camping out in front of a middle school. So I'm not going to do that. And Elsie, for you, what's been the craziest part of this? I mean, you come here and you go, listen, what, who's the actor you want to meet or who's the director you want to talk to? What movie are you most excited to talk about? Oh, my God. Well, I would love to meet Gaga still. I was trying to meet her at the Globes, but understandably, she was pretty busy. Um, I don't know. I just met Timothy Chalamet like two seconds ago, though. So, I mean, pretty Gucci. Oh, are you just enjoying the ride? Is, is there a yeah, Gucci best line of the movie are you uh, like is this networking or just enjoying yourself and that's it it's networking I just saw my family when the nominations came out and I'm just trying to transition into a, a stable position of power so I never have to see them again Bo Burnham Elsie Fisher thanks guys thanks. thank you so everyone's going to know you as the bad guy from Black Clansman but Jasper pronounce your name properly for me so we get it right Jasper Pakkonen so Jasper listen this is an amazing performance you gave and I think for a lot of people, American audiences are going to say, wow, I don't know who this guy is, and why is there a Finnish actor playing a KKK guy? How did this all come about? Um, I, I just got a call from my agent saying, Spike Lee's in L.A., he's auditioning for his new, new film. We don't really know what it is, but we're going to send you two scenes, learn them, and walk, go in the room and do your best. I had no idea what the story is. By the, from those two scenes, you could tell that it's a movie about KKK, but you have no backstory, you have n- no explanations of what you're doing. So I walk in the room, and uh, Spike looks at the paper, looks at my name that has a lot of dots, a lot of umlauts, and goes, where are you from? And I said, Finland. And he goes, Finland? And kind of just sinks back into his thing and write some notes and we start doing the um, doing, going, running the scene with the casting director 
and midway through the first scene, Spike jumps out of the uh, the sofa and goes, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. You're not from Finland. You're from Alabama. And starts laughing. <laughs> and I'm not, I'm not sure if it's a good laugh or a bad, like if I completely blew it and my southern accent is completely stupid and, and ridiculous. And, uh, and then Kim Coleman, the casting director, goes, Jasper, that's a, that's a good thing. That's a positive thing. Keep, just keep going. So we ran, run the couple of scenes and Spike goes, Finland? Sit down. He goes, why haven't I ever seen you before? I say, I've, I've never worked in the States. I'm, I'm from Finland. And uh, he's kind of like scratching his head going, what's going on kind of a thing. And we speak a little bit about Finland and how racism is, is in Finland, how I see American racism. And and then then I walk out the room thinking it kind of went pretty well. And uh, later on, Spike told me that, that uh, as... He was, you know, actors were coming in and out. He had a list of actors. There was a name, credits. Name, credits. Name, credits. All of a sudden, there's a name with lots of dots. Zero credits. He has no idea who I am. And he just goes, how did this guy get in, the, get, get in, get in through that door? All right, Taco, Rich Moore and Clark Spencer, Ralph Breaks the Internet. My kids have seen it three times on the perks of... I love your kids. <laughs> These are good, good kids. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. You guys won the Academy Award for Zootopia as well. Uh, Rich, what was the biggest challenge of making a sequel? I know how challenging it can be. How do you top the original, which was so beloved? What was it for you guys? Well, I think the, the hard thing about the sequel is making it enough like the first one that people recognize the characters and the tone of it, but not so close that that it feels like you're, it's just a rehash of the first movie. So it was always kind of trying to thread that needle. It's always a challenge, Clark. You're trying to get jokes for the audience, for the parents, and for the kids. This one's got a bunch of great jokes for millennials. Uh, how do you kind of find that fine line? Is is there a one-to-one ratio? You go, okay, one for the kids. we got a fart joke and a burp joke, right? One now, it's a little more highbrow. You know, it's not really a science necessarily, but I think, you know, Rich and Phil, who've teamed together on the first Wreck-It Ralph and on Zootopia, do such a great job of trying to find that humor that can go at both levels, enough that the kids will enjoy, but also stuff that the adults are going to enjoy, too, so that when they go to the film, they realize it's for them also. So my you described was how Emily Bronte used to work, you know. <laughs> Wuthering Heights. Joke. Yeah, Wuthering Heights, you know. One fart joke, one burp joke, and then something a little highbrow. Yeah. Yeah. So my seven-year-old is trying to figure out what's eBay. He's like, I want to go to eBay. I'm like, no, it's not, it's not a thing. He's like, no, I want to go to Dad, when are we going to go to eBay? It looks so cool there. And they keep repeating that line. They go, e-boy, e-boy. You know, there is no such thing. Yeah, Dad, I want to see the e-boy. When are we going to go there? Just a thought with these actors. They're so good at doing the voices, John C. Riley in particular. I mean, how do you find an actor who has that resonance and he's got such genuine charm? Well, I, I mean, I've been a fan of John's forever, you know, since he did uh, the movie Heart Eight. Um, and I just think he brings humanity to everything he plays, whether it's a very dramatic role or even a very silly role. It's like I always want his characters to have what they want. You know, there's just something about him that his his empathy just comes through in, in every character. Especially right, with those P.T. Anderson movies, he's always that genial, just like a Magnolia feels sorry for the guy. You just love him. He's my favorite part of Magnolia. Rich Clark, thank you guys. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good evening. 
we do not have production as of yet for Up in the Air with Claire, but we'll get that at some point. Claire Atkins kind of to join us right now. By the way, Claire getting good buzz as well here on Apple Podcasts. So if you want to tell the Claire Army to chime in. I've got no, I swear to God, if you don't the believe Claire me. The Claire Army? Yeah, people were like, hey, Claire oh, Atkins wow. is great. Love, love Adnan and Claire. Good rapport back and forth. She's been a good addition. Sure. Adnan and I have spent uh, countless hours together here on late night Saturday nights, which probably sounds totally bad. No, but, yeah, exactly. Uh, but yeah. Andy both, Heritage is chiming in. Um, uh, <laughs> yes, we have, we've spent a lot of time with, together and we've, we have had our fair share of conversations. So I, I lent you, uh, no, no, I lent you, you bought mm-hmm. uh, Destroyer. You went inside. And the Nicole Kidman movie. Which Karen Kusuma is on Lions Den. Check out uh, Podcast One for Ben's podcast. But in my review of the film, I said it felt like one of these, speaking of late night Saturday night, like a late night cable thriller you come across. It was in 1998. What did you think of Destroyer? It was, I, first of all, I feel really bad for Nicole Kidman because it clearly is a role that the makeup and the hair and the anxiety and the facial I mean, you think like this is, this is supposed to be an award-winning role. The movie itself is so bad and it's so dark that you can't even get behind it as a, you don't get behind her. You don't get behind any of the characters. It, it's just a void. It, it's not good. Felt the time. And I know it's a female director as well, but like excessive violence against women. Excessive like, it's, it's so violence. It's, vi- it's so brutal. It was hard to watch. I don't know who this appeals to. Tough one. Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. I'm two episodes into season two now. You told me early on, listen, I know you don't watch TV shows. You're going to like it. You should watch it. Why do you love it so much? Uh, Marvelous Mrs. Maisel is the complete opposite of Destroyer in that way. That it, <laughs> that, it'll, that it, you can't help but feel good watching it. And it does, it has this beautiful, it's beautifully shot and it's New York in the 1950s and the colors and the costumes. All that is wonderful. But Rachel Brosnahan is just hilarious. I mean, she's, she is, Kinet- this kinetic energy that she that she has, and then the Amy Sherman Palladino, who you know is the creator of this series, who did Gilmore Girls, and everyone just loved you know the relationship and that between the mother and the daughter, and you see then all the relationships with the show with the fast talking and the quick little one liners, and if you don't like it, I, I just I don't understand I don't understand why you wouldn't like it. I think male or female, yeah, I would say you know it, it tends to be a I can see a female-driven audience, but I think if, if a boyfriend or a husband sat down and watched yeah. this, they go, well, this is pretty funny. I agree. I don't think it should dissuade people to go, it's just the show, but the female comic, trust, there's a lot for both genders to appreciate. I'm glad Claire mentioned the style. Pass me, you'd appreciate constant steady cam. She's right, because they're, they're, they're emphasizing the quick-wittedness of it, so the camera's similarly constant energy, like it's always moving. I'm like, these steady cam shots, they're elaborate. I mean, the cast, must they do take after take, it feels like a play at times. Well, and as you said to me, it, it, it drug a little bit for you in the, in the first... Uh, first few episodes, but then when you've got the, the, uh, the Lenny Bruce character and you've got Tony Shalhoub and you've got all these little quips that really bring it together that it's, it's not just one storyline. I mean, there's multiple storylines happening at once that you can follow and you're interested in. And I think they do that incredibly well in season two. All right. What do you have this time for Up in the Air with Claire? So we're at the point, uh, in the year where there's not a lot of movies in theaters. So, you know, you're, you're scrolling your Amazon, your Hulu, your Netflix. And you've probably come across The Bodyguard recently on Netflix, not to be confused with the 1992 film starring Kevin Costner and Whitney Houston, which, of course, was wonderful as well in its own right, but they have nothing to do with each other. Mm-hmm. So the first person to recommend this show to me was actually Joey Galloway. Oh, my God. Huge cinephile. Got to get him on. Shocking. Uh, yes, yeah, shocking. But he likes a, he loves crime thrillers, and he said, you'll like it. Six episodes, easy. No big deal. Yeah. So, uh, the show was originally aired in England, and it was the country's highest-rated show since Downton Abbey. So, it's been a huge, huge hit. They haven't announced that there's going to be a season two yet, but it's inevitable. And if you're a Game of Thrones fan, you will recognize the star, Richard Madden, who played Rob Stark in the HBO series. 
And just last month, he won the Golden Globe for Best Actor in a TV Drama. So if you saw that, you're going, well, what show is this? I haven't heard of it. You know, who is he? Uh, I wouldn't have. I don't think the show is about the acting necessarily. I think it's about the the plot and the crime. And he plays war veteran David Budd, who finds work as a bodyguard in the London Police Service. He is assigned to protect the Home Secretary, Julia Montague, who is an extremely controversial politician. I think we can all relate to that in America. Mm-hmm. And she has plans to introduce really invasive surveillance in the country. And that a lot of her colleagues disagree with this. A lot of the public disagree with this. And uh, David Budd, as her bodyguard, is really torn between protecting her, but also his own beliefs, which don't don't agree with hers. Mm-hmm. So the first 15 minutes of the show is one of the most exhilarating opening scenes to a TV show or movie I've ever seen. If you are not hooked in the first 15 minutes, then this is clearly just not your genre. Uh, so I, I say that, so you'll want to stick with it. And the character David Budd is very similar to Carrie Matheson of Homeland, mm. if you if you watch that, and Claire Danes. Very troubled, a lot of demons that they're trying to work through, and they're probably not in the right job should it work through those demons. And I will say you have to suspend your disbelief because the show can feel a little bit outrageous at times. So don't go in thinking this is exactly you know how it happens in politics and this is what you see on an everyday basis. And the show has stirred up some controversy for stereotypes. I don't want to go into that for spoiler alert, but uh, I think you will understand what I mean once you get through the six Gender episodes. stereotyping? Racial stereotyping? Racial stereotyping. Okay. Uh, and gender stereotyping in a way. And and so I think the issues we have in our country, I think they were a little bit ex- exacerbated from the British perspective. Mm-hmm. But if you're a fan of political crime thrillers like Homeland, Jack Ryan, or even House of Cards, I think the show's for you. All right. Give us where, where can we find it? Bodyguards available on? It's on Netflix. On Netflix. All six episodes. And it's six episodes, so it doesn't take you that long to get through it. You can, you can definitely binge in a weekend. Rick, Dan, are you guys aware of the show? I was not, but uh, I'm interested now. Aware of it. Haven't clicked on it. The fact Claire mentioned British politics. How about the fact there's a Brexit movie currently available on HBO? Uh, it is, Who the hell wants my, to watch a Brexit uh, movie? It's on my watch list <laughs> because I will watch anything that Benedict Better than Cumberbatch. Cumberbatch is in. I also saw, I mean, you've already reviewed it, The Basis of Sex. Yes. As you correctly pointed out, how is Army Hammer playing Marty? He's in, in, impossibly handsome to play And, he, and he's like 6'5", and yeah, she's like 5'2", and it's just, it's a, it's a lot. But what would you think of it? I thought your review was accurate, which is that, listen, it's a nice January movie, but it's cliche-ridden. Like, good yeah, God. Take, take mom, take grandma. Without question. Good yeah. for an older audience that doesn't know a whole lot about it. I'd rather watch RBG, right. the documentary, and know more about her life. This is just one section of her life. Right. So, yeah, it's not you're not going to think about it next. Time. No, it's not one for me. Claire is always great, though. Thanks, Claire. Thank you. All right. Thanks so much for checking out Cinephiles. Pete Giannassini has made his way in here. I, I want to call him our former boss now because I feel like Louise has taken a more active role here. Although PG, I feel still like a shepherd. Shots fired here. No, listen, I think PG was always listening, but I feel like Louise is, is – listen, Louise listened last week. Are you kidding? You literally took the Apple analytics meeting we had and then discussed it to your audience, and now you've jumped into the top 20. So once again, subscribe unsubscribe, resubscribe again, rate and review. It's a lot more straightforward than Rob Lemmy will tell you. It's very easy to do. And I got to shut up my man, Cab, Cabral Richards, Cab, you know him as, because he's going to be on the podcast post-Oscars. He sent me a text, which is the funniest review of Beale Street. He's, I said, can I please read this? Because of course you can. We'll have to bleep this a little bit. But he goes, if Beale Street could talk, it would say, this movie is boring. Can you tell your man Barry Jenkins about the concept of pace? I mean, do all of his films have to be drawn out character portraits? 
I know the source material from James Baldwin, a brilliant writer, poet, sheds light on so much souls lost to the industrial prison complex and a broken system that feeds that complex. But my God, I grew a full beard watching that film and I went in clean shaven. <laughs> it took 30 minutes to reveal the next plot point from Tish discovering she's pregnant to the audience finding out the Fonny got arrested. Movie did very little to make me care about the leads other than they are beautiful to look at. For a movie that takes place in New York, it was surprisingly quiet. Had some elements of Spike Lee's DNA, use of still photos, voiceover, beautiful compositions of Barry's actors, but didn't have the electricity or energy of a Spike Lee joint. Which brings me to Spike Lee. We're not going to get Spike Lee on Cinephile. Let's, let's slow our roll there. But Spike Lee's longtime editor and Spike Lee's longtime composer coming soon to Cinephile. Those interviews uh, we've booked are going to happen hopefully in the days ahead. Dan Stanzik will be at the Super Bowl, but we'll try to get those executed. And one last thought, I wanted to rename Dan Stanzik's Everyman Lonely Island because he's the only one who's carrying the torch trying to blast First Reformed. But he does have backup from my brother, Zeeshan Burke, chiming in. He goes, Dan was right about the ending of First Reformed. And I go, well, yeah, I, I, I told you don't watch it. You're not, you're going to hate this. Why would you watch it? I told you don't watch it. And he goes, no. I go, can you at least give it two Maple Leafs? He goes, one Maple Leaf just for Ethan Hawke's performance. I go, all right. Dan Stanzik, done of the year, and my brother both hated First Reformed. That's why he's my favorite Virk. <laughs> I'm convinced, by the way, there's a lot of these reviews as well going, First Reformed is great. A lot of tweets I got, very, very subtle way. Virk will retweet this. Like he's, just say he looks like Chris Chelios and say he like First Reformed. That's an automatic retweet. Maybe he'll follow me. Like, I'm so pathetic. I'm gullible, and I'll keep doing it. Thanks, as always, for checking out Cinephile. Subscribe, rate, review. Next time we're back with Spike Lee's longtime editor and composer. Until then, I'll see you at the movies. Don't miss out on the next episode of Cinephile. Subscribe to the Adnan Verk Movie Podcast by clicking the Listen tab in the ESPN app. The headlines remind us daily, the world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine. Stop noticing. But you know better, and your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over three million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour 3-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com